The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Grove. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you before, my name is Ryan, one of the pastors on staff. And uh, if you are a normal attender here, you're probably wondering, what the heck? Because this is not normally what we do in this spot. Uh, But today, there's a reason for that. It's a very special day in the life and in the history of the Grove Church. And we mentioned this last week for those that we're here is today we celebrate uh, a a huge milestone uh, in the lives uh, and in the process of our church, which is uh, this signifies Pastor Nick and Heather's uh, 10 years as lead pastors of the Grove Church, which is an incredible accomplishment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nick and Heather, on on behalf of the Grove, I think I can speak, the Grove families, that we love you guys dearly, and uh, we're so grateful and thankful for you. Um, Ten years really is a a huge milestone uh, and accomplishment, and of course, we were trying as a staff to figure out what we wanted to do today. Many of you, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that we can get crazy in some of the videos that we've done in the past, and even live things, and so we were kind of racking our brains on what we wanted to do uh, uh, for this 10-year celebration, and uh, the first idea that we had as a staff is, you know, Nick loves humor values humor. So we thought about bringing two big chairs for him and Heather and that the staff would roast them. But we quickly decided that was a bad idea uh, because uh, we value and, and love Heather way too much to do that. So um, no, just kidding, Nick. We love you uh, like that as well. But uh, yeah, the staff were trying to figure out what to do. And honestly, uh, I think this video will help uh, describe that process better than I can explain it. So check this out. Hey guys, thanks for meeting today, being a part of the H&H committee where we're going to honor pastors Nick and Heather as you know, it's their 10-year anniversary of being lead pastors here at the Grove Church. So I called us together to come up with creative ways to celebrate them. So what do you got? Oh, 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 oh. Uh, uh, okay, Michelle, what do you got? Yes. Here's my idea. We build in front of the church a gold statue of them. Ooh, like Rocky Balboa. You're right, Michelle. I think gold is their color. No, 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 no. I got it. We build a website. And then billboards, big ones all up and down State Street. Their giant faces, Nick and Heather, and then across their foreheads, NikkiBministries.gov. .gov? Wait, I've got it. Nick's office needs a remodel. I have got the perfect idea. Carpet from the NPR. Oh, I would love to help with that, Pam. That carpet would bring out Nick's eyes. I don't know, guys. I think a funny video might be the best way to go. I mean, we're pretty funny. Everyone loves a funny video. Seriously, why do we always have to do a video? Maybe you're right. We do make a lot of videos. Come on, guys. It's a short week, and I have a ton of work to do. Andrea, you really do work so hard. No, guys, listen. I wrote them a song. I think they're going to love it. It's going to be perfect. I'll give you a little sample of it. It's been ten whole years as pastors of the Grove And everybody knows you're both so beautiful When you speak, it's so beautiful And when you smile, it's so beautiful And when I hug you, you smell beautiful Oh, Jordan, that was like kisses from heaven. No, no, it was not. Here is what we do. You know that blank wall in the lobby when people walk in the entrance? There's nothing there. We paint a mural. On this mural, the very center, Pastor Nick and Heather standing there. All around them, children. 
the children of Marysville, all the children of Marysville, thousands upon thousands of children. And as we look at the mural, you're walking by it, their arms begin to grow wider and wider, and they embrace the children, all the children of Marysville. Best idea yet. Thank you, Diane. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm not feeling that. All right, Curtis, what do you got? Maybe I can make him some chili. He could eat it before he preaches, and we could have a rootin' tootin' good time. Curtis, your chili is delightful. Yeah, okay. Guys, how about we just say thanks? It's been ten whole years as pastors of the Grove, and everybody knows you're both so beautiful. When you speak, it's so beautiful and when you smile it's so beautiful and when i hug you you smell beautiful the way you wear plaid it's so beautiful when heather sings it sounds beautiful hi nick and heather hey nick i love what you've done with your office here but uh, seriously we love you guys and we just wanted to say congratulations on 10 years of ministry that's a milestone and uh, we're proud of you, and we're proud of the Grove Church and all you guys have accomplished in serving this community and reaching people for Christ. Nick, you have an anointing on your life, you really do, uh, for reaching people. And as I've seen the Snohomish campus now launched and many more campuses to come, I believe that God has a calling on you guys for the next 20 years in just serving people and loving people and changing this community. We love you guys. Absolutely, and Grove Church, I know you understand and, and appreciate the leadership that God has placed to be your leaders. And you are be blessed beyond measure. And we just pray a blessing over you guys. We love you so much. And we're so excited to see what God has planned for you in the next several decades. We love you and congratulations. Hey, Nick and Heather, this is Dan and Nicole Chris here in Coeur d'Alene. Hey, we love you guys. We're so excited for 10 years in the Grove because we know the ministry years, that's like 20 or 30. And so, man, just congrats. Great job. Love what you're doing. Uh, we're just grateful for your friendship. You've, you've given to us more than we've given to you. And so uh, thank you for your investment in us. And in Dan, hey, Jacob, how are you, man? Hey, hey good. Good, but you know what? I'm in the middle of something real quick. We, can I get back to you? Uh, yeah, that's okay. I'm, that's okay. my friends, Nick and Heather. I don't know if you've met them. They're awesome, but yeah. Okay. Anyways, no worries, no worries. sorry about the interruption. But hey, guys. Anyways, happy anniversary. We love you more than words could express. Hope you have a great time. We love you. We love you, Mom and Dad. Thank you for being such great parents all these years and putting up with our craziness, especially this child. That one's the craziest. We love you. Thank you for everything you do for us. I love you. You're awesome. The way you raise your kids is so beautiful, and how you sleep. It looks beautiful The way you sip your coffee You slurp beautiful The way you clip your nails Is so beautiful Everything you do is beautiful Come on, Grove Church. Can we show our appreciation? Nick and Heather, would you join me on stage? Come on up here. We love you guys. Come on up. Come on in close. I showered this morning, Heather, so you don't have to be afraid. 
Uh, you guys can go ahead and take a seat where you're at. I do want to say this, um, Nick and Heather, and we talked about this a little bit last week uh, for those that were here, but the Bible is very clear for us. It paints a picture from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation uh, about how important it is for each of us as individuals, no matter where we're at, uh, is honoring the authority that God has placed over us. And all authority is God-ordained. And uh, if I'm sure some could relate, not all authority and leaders are good or are great or have the best intentions uh, for those, whether it's bosses or whatever it is. But we are very blessed that God gave us you guys, and we mean that from the bottom of our hearts. It's not just words. Um, to be able to work alongside you, and I think I can speak on behalf of the church to say not only are we behind you, but we're with you on mission um, to make a difference uh, in Marysville and and the surrounding cities. And so we have just a little uh, gift of appreciation that the church wanted to give to you, just a small way to say that we love you in a practical way. And uh, we actually got one more surprise as well. You don't know this, but we've had, of course, some videos of some people that mean a lot to you and you mean a lot to them. Uh, They're all over the country, some of them. And so they send in videos. But uh, there was a couple that wanted to, when they heard about this, make sure that they were actually here today in person to come share a few words with you. And I'm actually going to invite them out on the stage from the back uh, right now. You can turn and take a look. But it is our superintendent and network leaders, uh, Don and Brenda Ross from the Northwest Ministry Network. Wanted to be here today. This is a real honor for us to be here, and I'm going to hand the mic to my wife, Brenda, and she will explain to you about that honor. So this is my home church, and so this is, it's wonderful to be back today. When I was in 1971 in the fall, I walked in the front doors of this church. God sent me here after being saved at Cedar Springs Camp, and I was discipled and loved here and actually uh, adopted and uh, one night, uh, Pastor Ron Tuttle, a missionary to India, was past, uh, was speaking, and I was uh, called into the ministry. And Don and I were married here before this congregation, and you witnessed our vows. And uh, you, uh, the DNA of the network leaders is all over. Uh, you and us together, we share. And in 1970s, the Jesus people filled Marysville and were filling all the churches. And I remember the day they came and they were sitting in the front rows of this church. And I was a teenager in the back sitting with my friends. And they were loud. They were wearing jeans. They had long hair. They had uh, headbands on. And it was mixed with a congregation of suits and ties and white shirts. And I remember Pastor Levi Larson standing up on this platform looking at the congregation and saying, to the Jesus people, you are welcome here. And he set the tone, and it was messy, and they waded into messy waters. And I think today, uh, as we are celebrating again, I think the DNA of whosoever will may come is here. And thank you for leading, and we honor you. It's an honor to be here today. And it's a, it's a privilege to be back at my home place and to see it's flourishing and being blessed. Amen. Didn't she do great? Yeah, awesome. (laughs) So this is a certificate from the Northwest Ministry Network recognizing your 10 years of faithful service. And it just says that we're recognizing your 10 years of faithful service and little sign and seal and all that. You can hang that up in your office and I'll be here in about 18 months spontaneously to see if you actually did that or not. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But I'm going to hand this to you. And I would love the honor of being able to pray for you. And in a moment, I'm going to have you stand and help me with that prayer. In the New Testament, 
the believers laid hands on other believers for three reasons. To identify with their ministry, to see them healed, and to see them filled with God's Holy Spirit. And this place has God's Spirit. It was amazing to me when I drove in the parking lot. I mean, the buzz starts before you're out of the car because that lot wasn't needed a number of years ago, but it's needed now. And I loved quizzing the parking lot attendants. When do you come? How many cars come in? Because I like that kind of stuff just because those are symbols of a healthy ministry. And here's, here's what I want you to know, and here's how I'll pray. Ephesians 4 says that every pastor is a gift to the church. So the way you take care of your pastor and pastors Jesus recognizes that and will honor you when you honor them. But every church is a gift to the community. You have not made this into a Christian club. You are part of a cause that spreads into the community. And we hear about that. And I'm here to say thank you to you and thank you to you. Would you stand while we pray? If you're so inclined, just extend your right hand as if you were laying hands on Nick and Heather's shoulders. Jesus, we lift up our friends to you, our pastors, our leaders. We thank you for this chapter, for this season, for this time. You have placed them in this place to lead this church forward, to expand the kingdom of God, to bring the message of hope to hopeless people to bring a message of light to those who feel trapped in darkness. Father, I pray that you will unleash vision yes. and strategy as never before, and that every person who is a part of the Grove Church will recognize that God has placed them here for a season, for a purpose, and to move your kingdom forward. 100 years from now, we'll look back and rejoice that we were obedient now, because what's done today matters for eternity. In Jesus' good name we pray, and everybody said together, amen. 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 Give them a hand. Yeah, come on, that? Grove Church. Thank you guys so much. Well, good morning. You know, I want to say thank you to everyone that is part of the Grove, whether you've been here for weeks, months, maybe you've been here years, or maybe you've had to endure the whole 10-year journey. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, but I just want to say thank you. You know, when uh, Pastor Don talks about, uh, you know, uh, us being treated well or honored, we definitely feel that, and we, it is so mutual. We love what we get to do. We definitely feel like it's a calling. And I will say, when I look back 10 years ago, Heather and I were having a lot of conversations about this transition and what this would look like. And on one hand, I mean, just going, we're in way, way over our heads, and yet that's okay because God calls us out, amen? God challenges us to take steps of faith, so we did that. But I did say to her this, I said, listen, I've got to take this, um, and this is just my frame of reference for how I sort of deal with it, this kind of a big deal. I said, let's take this as a five-year experiment, and if, if after five years we feel like we've made some progress and things are good, great. If not, we'll just go find another job. So anyway, I don't know if that sounds horrible or not, but that was originally kind of my frame of mind going, all right, let's, let's see what God can do. But it has been um, such an honor, such a great journey. And honestly, we really do look forward to however God has this future look that we hopefully get to be a part of that for a good chunk of time. So anyway, thank you guys all so much um, for putting up with us on so many ways. But anyway, we're in a series called Life Multiplied. Today is part three. And really from the beginning of this series in part one, 
The outset of this whole series is this idea that Jesus says that the enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy, but he says, I have come that, we may, that you may have life and have it to the full. And we basically were reminding everybody of this, that, that when Jesus talks about a full life, he's not talking about packed calendars and responsibilities and appointments and busyness and craziness so we feel weary and frustrated and all that. When he talked about this idea of having a full life, it's life abundantly, something about a deep-seated purpose and joy for why we exist why we're here, what we're about. And, and, and so that's the beginning of this series. And what God wants to do with our lives is really multiply that ability to live with purpose, our ability to invest our time, to invest our resources, to make a difference the way God calls us to, and that there's something about that picture that he paints for us. I want to start as we jump in here. We're going to be in Matthew 22 here in just a little bit, but I want to read an excerpt from a book that I read years ago. And by the way, if you're looking for a good book to read, it's called The Life You've Always Wanted by John Orr. Berg, and I don't always get up here and read a book, but um, there's a couple things I wanted to read, and the first one is this. Jesus took a little child in his arms and said, in effect, there's your ministry, and I want you to listen to this. Give yourselves to those who can bring you no status or clout. Just help people. You need this little child. You need to help this little child, not just for her sake, but for your sake. And hear this, for if you don't, your whole life will be thrown away in an idiotic contest to see who is the greatest. But if you serve her often and well and cheerfully and out of the limelight, then the day may come where you do it without thinking, what a wonderful thing I've done. Then you will begin serving naturally, effortlessly, for the joy of it. Then you will begin to understand how life in the kingdom works. And Jesus was talking about, he was teaching his disciples about greatness. He, he was trying to redefine what greatness was because at certain points along the journey, they were having conversations about what it meant for them to be great and who got to be right next to Jesus if there's gonna be some sort of kingdom in the future. To sum up one of those lessons in Mark chapter 10, he says this, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then referring back to himself, he said this, for even the son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then you will begin to understand how life in the kingdom works. We live in a world where we're surrounded by this idea that we're the center of the universe, or we're at least the center of our universe. And if we're all really honest, nobody would say, I believe I'm the center of the universe or I'm the center of a universe that's kind of me. But the truth is, without saying it, we live in ways that kind of point to, we think we're pretty important or we think what we have or what we do is, is better than others. Here's a little test that maybe helps us all wrap our heads around this conversation. Have you ever become frustrated because you did something someone else wanted to do rather than what you wanted to do? Yeah, and a bunch of us go, yeah, yeah, I've been there. How about this one? Have you ever gotten in an argument only to realize you were wrong but kept arguing because you refused to admit you were wrong? I know nobody can relate with that, and that's not me. How about this one? Have you ever acted like you were sleeping when one of your kids was crying because you knew your spouse would get up? Okay, and, and here's the Academy Award. Have you ever acted groggy as if you wanted to get up but just couldn't muster the energy? Yeah, I know that's nobody in here, right? Or, or maybe this. Have you ever ignored someone who tried to show you how to do something? 
because you were convinced that your way was the right way? And finally, maybe you simply feel like this. You know what? If, if, if this is gonna change, it's gonna take me. That, that somehow I'm the one bearing the responsibility for all of this. It's the, the direction of my family or the burden for the place that you work. And, and if I'm not here, what would ever happen? If, if, if I wasn't doing all this, it would all go to, you know, whatever. And, and we play this idea. And what that's called in psychology is simply this, a Messiah complex. And, and we've probably heard that idea before, that this idea of a Messiah complex. is We bear the burden or we bear the weight of whether whatever it is succeeds or fails. And that's where I want to read just a little bit here. And this is out of chapter seven of that book I was referring to, The Life You've Always Wanted. It's the opener of a chapter called Appropriate Smallness. Leon, Joseph, and Clyde all suffered from a Messiah complex. It was not just a touch of narcissism or a dash of grandiosity. There were, there were three chronic psychiatric patients at a hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, all diagnosed with psychotic delusional disorder, grandiose type. Each one maintained that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Each one believed that he was the central figure around whom the whole world revolved, the three little messiahs. Psychologist Milton Rokich wrote The Three Christs of Ypsilanti about his attempts to help these three men come to grips with the truth about themselves and to learn to just be Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. Rokich spent two years working with the men, but change came hard. It was as if they were not sure they could bear to live if they weren't who they thought they were. They could be very rational in other aspects of life, but as Rokich put it, they would hold on to messianic delusions even though they are grotesque, ego-defensive distortions of reality. With little to lose, Rokich decided to try an experiment. He put the three men into one small group. For two years, the three delusional messiahs were assigned adjacent beds, ate every meal together, worked together at the same job, and met daily for group discussions. Rokich wanted to see if rubbing up against each other or rubbing up against other would-be messiahs might diminish their delusion, a kind of messianic 12-step recovery group. The experiment led to some interesting conversations. One of the men would claim, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm on a mission, and I was sent here to save the earth. How do you know, Rokich would ask. God told me. And one of the other patients would counter, I never told you any such thing. Aim for the three messiahs and you end up playing the three stooges, Larry, Moe, and Curly, arguing over their place in the Trinity. As we read about this, we don't know whether to laugh or cry. Listen to this. The bitter irony is the very delusion to which they clung so tenaciously is what cut them off from life. To stop being the messiah sounded terrifying, but it would have been their salvation if they could only have tried. If Leon and Joseph and Clyde could have stopped competing to see who gets to be the Messiah, they could have become Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. Every once in a while, one of the men would get a glimmer of reality. Leon eventually decided that he wasn't actually married to the Virgin Mary after all. She was his sister-in-law. What little progress they made resulted from their togetherness, but that change was only a glimmer and the light of reality never shone very bright or lasted very long. To maintain the illusion that you are the Messiah, you must shut out every evidence to the contrary. And listen, if you want to be your own God, you have to settle for living in a tiny universe where there is room for only one person. 
Your world could grow infinitely bigger if you were only willing to become, in the words of a friend of mine, appropriately small. I have my own share of a Messiah complex. It's not the kind that would get me sent to an institution. But in its own way, it's just as serious and irrational as the dilemma of Leon and Joseph and Clyde. You have a share of it as well. In fact, the sin of pride is the oldest one in the book. The writer of Genesis states that it was through pride that the serpent tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And we have all in our own way been trying to take God's place ever since. We have all been inmates in the same asylum. See, the thing is, when we look at our lives through the lens of if we do what we want and get what we want, then we'll finally be happy something is missing. And if we're all honest at the same time, we wrestle with, I really want what I want. I really want to do what I want to do. I really want to eat what I want to eat and go where I want to go. And as that continues to play out, we think somehow that if we can get those things and do those things and be those things and experience those things, that's when we'll finally be fulfilled and happy because I get what I want. I actually stumbled across a few points. I was watching from a video from Pastor Andy Stanley the other day that happened to apply to this message. And he had three points that he made at the beginning that I want to read real quick. But he said this, if we always get our own way, we lose our way. And then he said, if we always do what we want to do, we end up where we don't want to be. And then finally, he said, if we get whatever we want now, we may not get what we really want later. And again, those are messages within themselves. There's so much to mine out of that that we could process that for hours. But but for the sake of today, I want to continue on with, with this. If we do what we want and get what we want, then we think we'll finally be happy, and that's a lie. Here's the truth that we know. The opposite is true. We become, when we get what we want and do what only we want, we become more self-centered. We become more about ourselves and more grumpy and less flexible. And what happens is we begin to feed a monster that only gets bigger. Have you ever met somebody that they always get what they want? Have you ever met somebody that it's always, we got to do what they want to do? Or maybe you are that person. The truth is you're not helping yourself when you live in a way that says, I want what I want. And that's how I'll be happy. The second best-selling book in the history of the world, second to the Bible, is a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And Pastor Rick Warren starts the book with this simple sentence, it's not about you. And you think about that. And, and, And the question becomes, well, what is it really about then? And that's where Jesus has some words for us. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has something to say about that whole picture. And and, and I'm going to start here in verse 34. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And God, we pray, as I often do for your spirit to really work in all of us. God, we invite you to to do inventory in our own hearts, 
God, where you're asking us not only, yes, to love you with all that we are, but to love our neighbor, that it reframes how we look through the lens of faith at the life we live every day. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's Jesus, and oftentimes religious leaders were trying to trap him into saying something that would get him in trouble, that could get him arrested, that eventually, as we know in the Gospels, would actually lead to his death. But here they bring up this idea, how do you sum up all of the Old Testament law? And Jesus simply says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is living, as we started out in this series, this is living in a place of surrender. That I said when we opened up this entire series, I basically just said it this way. When what we want goes against the grain of what God wants, we break. That that's where Jesus found himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. That he's praying, Father, take this cup, yet I want what you want more than what I want. That for you and I, we've got to find ourselves in a place of surrender. That to love God appropriately is to literally find ourselves in a place of full surrender. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. But, but he went on. Jesus didn't stop there. And we've got to remember this. He went on to say, and the second is like it. In other words, you can't separate the first command from the second command he's talking about. What, what, what that means is simply this. When we say, God, I want to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. I want to love you with all that. The outflow of that kind of love is a greater love towards people that need Jesus towards people that don't know him, towards the family of God together, that that's exactly what happens, that, that one doesn't exist without the other. Paul says in, in a letter that he wrote to the churches in, in a region of Galatia, in chapter five of Galatians, he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And there's a danger in understanding what he means here. And he talks about freedom multiple times in the New Testament. Paul writes to the church that you and I, we're free in Christ. We're no longer bound to all of the Old Testament law. We're no longer bound to look at Leviticus and celebrate certain festivals and bring certain animals and be in certain places for all this stuff. We're not bound to all of that. We're free from that. He said, we're free and that's an awesome thing. But he said, you've got to understand there are parameters to how you express that freedom because the church was saying, my freedom in Christ means I can do whatever I want to do. My behavior doesn't matter. And Paul says, on the contrary, you're wrong. You are free in Christ, not bound to all of this law. But what your freedom should result in is serving one another humbly in love. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, and he repeats this thing that Jesus mentioned, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he says that real freedom is exercised when it's leveraged for others. That our freedom is evidenced by the fruit it produces. And we're going to talk about that out of Galatians in just a minute. But here's the catch. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, somebody pipes in and says, well, who's my neighbor? And that's where we get the story of the Good Samaritan. There was a, an individual traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and, and he falls into the hands of bandits, and they beat him up and take his stuff and leave him for dead in the ditch. And religious leaders walk by. 
And they look at him and realize who he is and go, I we judge you, whatever, we don't continue on. Another group goes by that says they have some sort of faith in God and, and looks and realizes it's not the same, part of the same race. They continue on. And then a Samaritan, who shouldn't care at all, stops and has compassion and bandages his wounds and takes him to a place where he can get better and pays the whole bill. And Jesus says, which one do you think was the neighbor? And of course they reply, well, the one who helped. Jesus says, exactly. But here's where it leads for you and me today. Who is our neighbor? Well, our neighbor is the person who lives near us. Great, by address, here's where I live. Here's the people that live around me. Well, your neighbor is also the individuals that you go to work and you interact with all about your work. Customers or other coworkers, those are your neighbors. Well, the people that God put in my family, those are also considered biblically, those are my neighbors. The people that I pass in a grocery store, the individuals I drive around in traffic with, the people I interact with when I go on vacation, those are my neighbors. So when the question comes up, who's my neighbor, there's a danger to understanding the answer. Because the answer becomes simply this, my neighbor is everybody. So here's what happens. So when I say danger, here's what I mean. Here's what happens. Because it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And when your neighbor is everybody, it changes nothing about what you do. Because we go, well, how can I love everybody? How can I somehow show Jesus to everybody all the time? And it becomes this burden that we really don't take seriously because we don't think we can take it seriously. So nothing changes. If I were to ask you by address, who's your neighbor based on where you live? And you would go, well, Joe and Sally live on this side of us and, and Robbie, the single guy, lives over there and they live, and, and, and maybe you could explain by name who your neighbor is, but do you really know your neighbors? Have you gotten to invest time with your neighbors? What, what do you know besides the fact that they drive by in a blue car about this time of day and that time of day? What do you know except that you love the plants they put in their front yard and you've asked them where you could buy them someday? When Jesus says, love God with all that you have and love your neighbor, the danger is maybe we're getting a failing grade at actually doing it. And yet Jesus brings up some famous last words, go make disciples. What does it mean for you and I to help people see who Jesus is? Help people, invite him into their world. Why would they want to if you're one of the followers and, and you don't care about them? You don't take the time to invest in them. And it becomes a challenge for all of us. When our neighbor is everybody, we do nothing about it. See, when we spend our freedom helping others, we could easily think we have less time for ourselves. And while practically you could say that's true. The truth is serving others, loving others, extending our lives into the lives of other people actually breaks self-centeredness and multiplies genuine love. See, the idea that I started with as, as I read from, from the life you've always wanted, th this idea that Jesus says, here's a child, love them. Is this idea that they have nothing to give in return. They have nothing to offer in return. There's nothing you get out of it that, that's for you selfishly. But Jesus' idea is that it does something in us that all of us desperately need done in us. Dear Lord, I want to be broken of self-centeredness. I want to be broken of this idea that I've got to get my way or I'm not going to be happy. I've got to accomplish these things on my agenda or somehow I'm going to live 
frustrated. And that's a, that's a tall order for all of us because if we're honest, we all battle that whole idea of self-centeredness. We just don't like to admit it. Serving others breaks self-centeredness and multiplies a genuine love. I want to end by reading the message version. I don't often read the message version, but I love how it's put here by Eugene Peterson as he translates. But in, in the message version of Galatians 5, <clears throat> uh, Paul, Paul gives advice to this church or this region of churches. He says this in verse 16, live freely and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there, and he's talking to all of us, for there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit. Just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness, these two ways of life are antithetical so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and escape the erratic compulsions of law-dominated existence? And now he's going to bring up a list that helps you and I filter, do I battle selfishness and how is it playing out in my life? So here's a list that he begins to give in verse 19. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get our own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. And obviously, that text bears weight to it. That when you and I, any one of those phrases, probably for all of us, one of those would stick out and maybe more where we go, oh, I feel that one. Oh, I struggle with that one. You put yourself right there and go, that's me, and, and, and that's a heavy weight to bear, but I love that, that he turns the tables. And this is where I want to leave us today. He says, this isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. Now, let me be clear. He's not talking here about you and I entering eternity and, and enjoying a relationship with God in eternity that's wonderful. He's actually not talking about that right here. He's actually saying you and I will not have the kind of life God designs you to have on this planet. The time that you and I have will not be spent the way God designed. It goes back to what Jesus said. I have come that you may have life and have life abundantly. And so now we get to verse 22 and 23. And this is where in, in, in Christian communities all over the world for a long time, it's the fruit of the spirit and we're used to it. But, but again, I wanted to read the message because I think it helps give a little more clarity to some of these words where Paul would say the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are great, but I want you to hear it this way. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like, and here's your list, things like 
affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in our hearts, a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our own way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. When Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, Paul gives a little more clarity to what he's talking about. Are our lives being spent forcing our own agenda, forcing what we want, looking at life through the lens of what's happening for me or what's in it for me or what do I get out of this, but instead breaking selfishness, esteeming others above ourselves, loving others the way Jesus modeled love for us, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you and I are called to fulfill the great commission, which we are, make disciples, help people see Jesus, Paul gives us a bit of a roadmap right here. This is a purposeful, fruitful, abundant life right here. I'm gonna read the very end of this chapter just because I love how it's put, but I think it, it paints a poignant picture for you and I of this whole Messiah complex thing. Jesus was no Superman. He did not defy his enemies with hands on his hips and bullets bouncing harmlessly off his chest. The whip of the Roman soldiers drew real blood. The thorns pressed press, real flesh. The nails caused mind-numbing pain. The cross led to actual death. And through it all, he bore with them, forgave them, and loved them to the end. God's great holy joke about the Messiah complex is this. Every human being who has ever lived has suffered from it except one, and he was the Messiah. Father, today, God, in a world where, where we're kind of trained to get what we want, where, where we're, we, we learn it really from a young age when the first word is mine sometimes, that, that God the world kind of does revolve around us, or, or at least we should want it to. And it does go back to that original sin and, and the issue of pride in our own hearts. And God, I pray that we would see how clearly that when we get what we want and do what we want, it doesn't actually lead to us becoming happier, but more selfish and less content. And we're feeding a monster that I believe today for many of us, you're asking us to slay. You're asking us to lay down. You're asking us to repent of, God, forgive us. Where we struggle with, we want what we want. Where we don't look through the lens of our faith and realize that you ask us to love other people, love our neighbors as ourselves, build bridges to people that many don't yet know Christ and yet we want so badly for the light to come on. But how will it ever come on if we're not showing them, helping them, modeling for them, loving them? Jesus, thank you for the words you give us, but let it be more than words. God, let it be transformational, esteeming others above ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.